Hello and welcome to Cherry STEM number something. <laughs> we are talking about autism or is it mankind 2.0 in beta testing? We'll see. We will attempt to answer this question. If you'd like to familiarize yourself with autism a little bit, uh, if you are not familiar at all, you can definitely check out our first show on this topic. I will be leaving it in the low bar down below. So you can check that out after this. I will also be going over some of the basics a little bit to sort of bring uh, some of you up to speed or just pick up where we left off. And uh, I discovered some interesting new things in, in my research on autism and as part of a podcast uh, I recently did with Sluts and Scholars. Hopefully that'll be coming out sometime soon. Uh, shout out to Nicole and Charlotte. And uh, so I would like to talk about autism as Hans Asperger classified it himself, which is the extreme maleness of the brain. Now, what does that mean? What, what is male brain and female brain? What, what does even any of that mean? Well, uh, when you look at infants, um, or let's just you know go to children, small children, you go males versus females, and uh, the males prefer to play with trucks and balls and mechanical type objects, while girls prefer to play with dolls, and they frequently focus on the experience and the emotions of those dolls. So we can already tell there's a bit of a differentiation in preference of what the male versus female brain finds interesting and, and they did this with primates too the primates the baby primates actually went for the typically male uh toys and the baby uh, primate females went for the typically male uh female toys as well so it was it's so it's not even just uh just humans the, the primates did, went for the same thing so uh the, yeah the differentiations are happening early and the amygdala is one of the uh, easiest places whoa, to see whoa, differentiation. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, yeah, you're, you're going there. All right, I'm going to let you go. Uh, what is this unsanctioned interrupting? Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, excuse me. And yes, that is my co-host, Richard Rall, and I'm Anna Cherry, just in case uh, you guys are new to the show. Um, we both have experience in uh, psychology and neuroscience. Uh, well, I don't have experience in computer engineering, but he does, and a variety of other uh, systems building uh, things. So um, anyway, going back to to what I was talking about. So yeah, we can basically discount, as you mentioned, the primate uh, males choose boy-centric toys and primate females choose girl-centric toys. And therefore, we can fairly securely discount societal influence, uh, given that uh, sort of presentation of evidence. Now, we also have evidence of uh, newborns. Uh, so once again, this is not society. This is something that is seemingly biological. We have uh, human faces uh, is something that newborn infant girls focus on, while uh, mechanical type objects is something that human uh, boys focus on newborns. And in fact, uh, overly focusing on mechanical objects and not paying attention to faces in newborn boys is, or young boys, is one of the ways that we can determine if they're likely to have autism or not. So coming back to, you know, this obsession sort of of the the male or the extreme brain, uh, extreme male brain, which is autism, uh, of focus on geometric design, 
on patterns, on um, mechanical things that move mechanically versus faces or humans, uh, it's actually a 100% uh, autism prediction that when, when a child focuses on geometric designs instead of a face, when they have a preference away from the face. And as uh, you were mentioning um, briefly or just then a second ago, that uh, amygdala does have to do with this. It does indeed. And I will be talking in depth about the amygdala and its relationship to autism and other uh, disorders uh, in just a little bit. But um, just really quickly, I'd like to also point out that um, a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff that has to do with the way testosterone shapes brains in utero and in fact the more uh there is of prenatal testosterone the more there is of pattern focus and potentially autism in the newborn so uh i would actually do i would like to do a whole show on this a little bit more in depth on what testosterone does and what sort of prenatal hormones doing just hormones in general they're fascinating to me but uh you know let's go to the idea of uh the amygdala and what is the amygdala what does it do where it be what is happening and we've mentioned it quite a few times since it's one of our favorite subjects uh, it just has to do with so much uh of what we discuss because the amygdala is the social and the emotional learning center as well as as well as the fear center of the brain. And in fact, when people were shown sad faces, uh, their amygdala would activate. Uh, so it uh, is involved in processing sociality and emotions in a way. And there's actually really interesting stuff on the relationship and the connection between the amygdala and the orbitofrontal cortex, which is part of the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex in general is known to be a executive function area of the brain. And what that means is sort of the overarching, overriding, um, telling impulse control, uh, telling you what you should do, what you shouldn't, sort of the conscience, maybe like the, your, your, your con, um, like your conscience, like your little Jiminy Cricket, sort of the thing that tells you don't do that, um, don't you know, be nice to these people, be you know, and or don't overeat, or you know, a variety of little things that has to do with management um, of behavior has to do with the prefrontal cortex. Now, there's an interesting relationship between the amygdala and orbit frontal cortex, which is part of the PFC, and uh, which would make sense. You would have your social and fear learning center connected to the executive function center to sort of inform it of what it's learned. So what the amygdala has learned based on its interactions with people and with emotions and with everything, it kind of passes on that information, connects to the prefrontal cortex, which then sort of governs how you well, behave. Now, when, last time I was looking at it, one of the things that occurs <laughs> is that during amygdala activation, it actually disables the, uh, the, the you know, that connection actually, um, uh, synapses on it um, uh, inhibitively. In other words, uh, you, you disable your executive function when uh, the amygdala is strongly um, um, stimulated. So, so I mean, but what I'm eventually going to be getting to here is that, well, first off, like for instance, the whenever you associate fear specifically with the amygdala, it is not the feeling of fear so much as the association of stimuli that should be feared. In other words, it's kind of like the memory and uh, it is the associative area of, uh, in other words, the people who've had their amygdala uh, lesioned, uh, so same thing with animals, uh, they still could experience fear. However, 
however it is the uh the things that should be feared do not uh end up stimulating the fear so in other words like uh, normally you'd be like if you you were like standing over a uh uh extreme like a long drop or you know uh, exposed to it's like some like a rattlesnake about to strike or any of those things that you know or jump scares basically anything that might uh in, it would normally cause you to experience fear that those are kind of wiped out so my point is that i'm going to eventually get to the idea that instincts are very strongly tied to the amygdala so uh i'll let you continue from there uh well that's I can't really continue from there. Oh, well, from where, where you were, I mean, sorry. From, from where you were, from from where I interrupted you, I mean. Again. <laughs> Again, take that. You bastard. But no, the, uh, the idea is that the amygdala um, does control both the, the fear, uh, social learning, as well as sort of aspects to do with face recognition, or at least, for instance, sad faces. Seeing sad faces would activate the amygdala. And we do know that there is a bit of a dysregulation when it comes to autism to understanding faces. Faces is, is sort of a big problem. And emotions that people put forth through their facial expressions is something that uh, people on the autism spectrum struggle with. And the more you are on the spectrum, the deeper into the autism dysregulation you go, the harder it is to understand what people mean with their faces. And there's actually interesting, uh, this, this relationship between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. There was a, there was a study uh, on PubMed, uh, it was done by Harrington at all um, that examined uh, whether um, these deficits in visual information processing and autism spectrum disorder can be offset by recruitment of uh, brain structures involved in selective attention, which is in this case their meaning prefrontal cortex. And so the title of the study is that successful face recognition is associated with increased prefrontal cortex activation in autism spectrum disorder. So there's definitely an interesting relationship between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex is what we see as sort of our humanness is what makes us not animals, not as instinctual as, for instance, primates or whatnot. That is our executive function that tells us to not indulge in the the breeding or the aggressive or whatever other instincts that we may experience uh, from our amygdala and other places. And um, by activating the prefrontal cortex, you can actually modulate some of this autism relationship with faces and, and things like that. So there's interesting and of course, there yeah, so is. In other words, it looks like it goes both ways. In other words, mm -hmm. the, the amygdala can tend to uh, deactivate uh, parts of the prefrontal cortex, and uh, likewise the other direction. Right. Yeah. The activation of the prefrontal cortex can modulate some of the amygdala's dysfunction. Uh, so there's also really interesting stuff about the. So when you look at psychopathy, when you look at individuals who, um, you know, do not feel remorse for wrong actions and and behave in very um, very bad ways towards others where they have no empathy towards the experience of others and that makes them psychopaths um there is also dysregulation not just in the corpus callosum which we do not see in autism but there is also dysregulation in the prefrontal cortex and a sort of this relationship of the amygdala to the pfc loop or the orbital frontal cortex loop is something that we see a dysregulation of in psychopathy as well so uh there's other things in psychopathy but you can sort of see that there's a similar element of lack of empathy uh, or a lack of understanding of the experience of others that is common to both severe or just even mild autism sometimes and psychopathy. So now from there, I think- uh, you can Let me also up. 
Uh, let me put one other thing in here is that oxytocin actually inhibits the fear reaction in the amygdala as well. So oxytocin related to Wait, trust and love. Uh, I would definitely uh, you know. like to go to go back to that after you uh, after you talk about the amygdala and the instincts. Uh, I would like to definitely pick that back up because I have a, a stack of, of, of information here on modulation or the curing. <laughs> I'm doing air quotes of autism through oxytocin therapy. So yes, the, that is basically the, the, the topic today is instincts uh, as it relates to the amygdala or just amygdala in general and how that causes our behavior to be a certain way and how that relates to autism and then how all of that relates to oxytocin. So from here, um, let's go into the amygdala and the instinctual aspect of um, your sort of half of the, of the topic there. Okay, so you want me, me to speak a little on, on the, uh, the subject. Yes, um, okay, uh, one of the things that I did want to, uh, before we start into this, like, uh, the uh, I come from a perspective of when I was younger, I was very, um, uh, very on the spectrum. I'd say you, you, it was it would be pretty much obvious to anyone who met me, uh, et cetera, that I was uh, that was strongly on the spectrum. Uh, however, later in life, I became uh, kind of very aware of the deficits that go along with it. And, that, and that's one of the things that I really wanted to uh, discuss here is that we'll be talking about some negative things. And like, like, for instance, we're talking about, you know, psychopathy and things like that associated with it. Uh, uh, understanding. Just, uh, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, real quick. Just I'm, I'm um, not like medically diagnosed, but I myself have a degree in neuropsychology and I am self-diagnosed as Asperger's as well. So just to, to put that out there, uh, I, I am on the spectrum as well. So I'm not like talking about something I have no experience with either. <laughs> So that's it. Oh, okay. So, uh, but the, the the point is that it's very it's extremely important to recognize that uh, things that look like uh, they are negative also are extremely positive uh, at the same time. For instance, you know, you, you sometimes uh, if you're going towards something, you're also going away from something else, and uh, and that that tends to be true in all of the different systems uh, in the brain as well. And so, accepting that you can't. You know, in other words, like if you want to go to uh, you want to go to Disney World, you know, in California and you want to go visit the Capitol, you have to do one or the other. You can't do both simultaneously and trying to do both simultaneously just isn't going to work. Uh, and so just recognizing that, uh, you know, in in your uh, in your course of wanting to visit both uh, Disney World in California and the Capitol, uh, you don't get to, you know, uh, say uh, it's a bad thing that we're going, you know, west or it's a bad thing that we're going east if you're, you know, if both things are a good thing. Uh, and so it's just kind of the, um, I don't know, just kind of the the, the idea here is I'm, uh, I'm trying to say that there, that there are negatives and positives. And like, for instance, if you are, if you need to be able to, like a lot of things having to do with aggression, having to do with a larger amygdala, those are associated with maleness, uh, specifically the, uh, the, the larger right amygdala that is associated with fear, aggression, sexuality, uh, are, uh, they're, they're, you know, Aggression is a necessity of protection. In other words, if you are an extremely non-aggressive person, are you going to be able to protect your family? Uh, you know, seeing things as a just kind of black and white is a uh, is a huge mistake. And so, as we're discussing this topic and we talk about some of the negatives, the point is is that there is always a balance that that everyone is trying to maintain. And if you look at the way the biology works, it is homeostasis. It's all about uh, preserving this balance between opposite good things. Um, and so so uh, there's um, 
it's just whenever <laughs> that whole too much of a good thing that we all know about well there's there's some real basis in science and in, especially when when you look at biology it's funny how there the, some of the things that you learn in studying biology are are radically different from what you might uh, kind of learn in physics, where you try to, you know, you try to take things down to uh, in, in physics and mathematics. Uh, you, you try to take things down to the singular, simple thing, whereas in in biology, you're just constantly dealing with these uh, these dichotomies where there's these opposing forces that are uh, pulling things back and forth, and that that ends up being the very best way to create complex systems that persist over time. Uh, so, okay, all of that aside. Um, um, I'm kind of going from a perspective. Okay, so we find all these these differences between the uh, the amygdalas of males and, and females, uh, and uh, and their development, and um, and then we find that uh, that in autism, uh, basically, it seems to be extreme maleness of the brain. Um, so, so there is a uh, there's a thing here looking at uh, deeply in the past. Like one one of the things she said at the very beginning is we're going to say is this is this uh, humanity 2.0? Well, uh, we we haven't looked enough at the uh, at the primate brains uh, differences between humans and primates. Some of the some of the difference. Uh, differences between human and primate brains are in the location of the amygdala. Um, but uh, the only things, one of the interesting things that I specifically found in, in my interests is, uh, is kappa opioids, uh, or I, uh, kind of a specialization in, in my study. Uh, and, uh, and there is the difference uh, uh, in genes between humans and primates, which um, I think a lot of people know there's this very, very, I think it's I, I can't remember what the percentage is. It's like less than 2% or something between humans and primates and then uh, changes in our DNA. Uh, well, one of those, one of the, the differences is in the way that we use kappa opioids. It's related to the amygdala. Uh, and so there, there are, there, there is this pattern of, um, uh, information that leads to the idea that some of the things that uh, deal with the differences between humans and primates are very, very tied up in the amygdala. And of course, as we said before, the the orbitofrontal cortex relating to the amygdala and how those those two interact. So there's there's interactions. There's not a very definitive laid out um, you know map here. We're discussing something that is going to require a lot of conjecture and uh, things of that nature. So. Um, so my conjecture is that uh, whenever you find, for instance, that the lesion, a lesioned amygdala in uh, female primates uh, leads to they like they they no longer mother. Okay, so in other words, they they don't do they they just completely they're either not interested in in uh, mothering or they are uh, even uh, uh, they treat their child as like this foreign entity that is uh, you know that's like taking from them. <laughs> you know, it's like every time it wants something from them, it's taking from them. You know, uh, and so you could. See see how they're, you know, without the instincts that are basically part of, um, it's a system of knowledge. That's what instincts are. They are basically what biology has stored as the best way, the best systems to accomplish the task of keeping a, a species alive. And so that is a, a set of memory that is very generalized. And so there, it, of course it has uh, what we might call wisdom to, another, to it. In other words, it's developed over, you know, billions and billions trillions of interactions and uh and it's the information that has been stored over a very very long period of time it's like a, it's an aggregate that is 
just enormous. So there's a wisdom that is tied up in uh, in our um, instincts, and of course there are. Um, so we know instincts. Are, we can look at those as basically um, uh, genetic memories, and we we certainly have them. Otherwise, you you know things as as weird as you know uh, are. are desires that come like for food in general like why is why why is sweet good why do i like sweet uh where does the the idea of uh, i i like the female form what you know what's what is it about that shape why, why is that shape pleasant uh, you know all these things are obviously these are genetic uh, memories. Uh, well, they've also found, of course, that genetic memories uh, are can occur. So that's a long-term genetic memory. There are short-term genetic memories that they've recently discovered with um, with animals that they were able to train them to fear. Uh, I think it was cherry blossom smell, and uh, then they uh, then e even up to I think their grandkids, they still would avoid cherry blossom smell uh, without ever having been exposed to it in their lives. Uh, so so there's a so we have genetic memories in long term, and we actually now find, have found that genetic memory exists in the short term as well. So, so here's the thing. So we have uh, these genetic memories that most animals can basically use that as their way of getting around. In other words, they, they're, they're using aggregate information. They're using experiences they've never had. Now we've uh, established, we've, uh, we've, we've started using language as another way for us to use experience that we've never had, but we still also have instinct. And with the development of civilization and the, uh, these massive changes that have happened in a terribly short period of time, we have this this uh, problem that the wisdom that is built up over um, you know these tens of thousands and millions of years in certain uh, instances are uh, are applicable to situations that typically do not change very rapidly. However, there has been this massive, rapid change in the way that human beings live. And so, and it, and it kind of came about once we started developing tool use. So, so you can kind of see that, you know, tool use, the development of civilization, um, uh, a lot of people would say that, that civilization came about with language, but uh, I think maybe tool use and language, both of those things, they, they're kind of, uh, difficult to separate, I would say, since language is a tool, and uh, and so there's kind of a there's this this point at which mankind started to change. Now, the, now our brain size, um, therefore, we assume the uh, uh, most of its structure as well. Though there's there's reason to believe maybe not, um, but at least our brain size hasn't changed in three hundred thousand years. Uh, however, we don't have indications of any kind of even just you know tool use uh beyond extremely rudimentary tools um you know which we do find in primates occasionally as well but extremely rudimentary tools other than that they we didn't start developing things for until about a hundred thousand years ago so there's a two hundred thousand year gap where our brains were the same size and we were doing something different with it because you don't sit there and create this this hugely fat um, requiring uh, it, it it we actually endanger uh, our the um, the the large size of the brain endangers the female because of the the how vulnerable they become uh, while they're trying to give birth because of the uh, the child's um, uh, dependence upon the mother requires that the mother have a uh, a mate that can help with the the process so there's just this huge burden of having a big brain uh, this uh, there's a there's a great book uh, I forget what the names of the authors are but they're a couple of neuroscientists and it's called Big Brain and it goes into uh, the history of uh, 
um, a couple of um, different skulls and things that we found, such as the boss cops, where uh, apparently the prefrontal cortex was as much larger uh, than uh, the modern human brain as our uh, modern human brain is larger than a chimpanzee's uh, prefrontal cortex area specifically. I mean, the, diff the difference in the prefrontal cortex area, how large it was. So there's, it, it seems as though we've tried out different um, uh, PFC sizes uh, as well. But getting back to the, uh, the point here that we are, um, so we have a, a brain that is very difficult to develop, yet it developed without the purpose that we tend to think of as human, which is the tool use and, and things of that nature. So uh, it's uh, a lot of neuroscientists believe that basically what, what it is is that uh, many animals use social interaction as their primary mode of um, survival. In other words, it is the way that the, the group uh, reacts with the with within itself that um, is the way that a primate survives. So specifically, like the rhesus macaques are one of the animals that is adapted to the most places on the planet, and they are one of the ones that use uh, social interaction to a tremendous um, extent. In other words, they 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 have complex social cues, social hierarchy, families. They have uh, all and and they watch each other like a hawk, and it's and the slightest thing. Slightest deviation from the social norm, it can get you outcast, can get you attacked. Um, you know, the, in other words, the the social hierarchy is extremely important to their survival because the gathering of the food happens predominantly as a group. So you kind of see here something that is basically the interdependency of a civilization is kind of already st starting to develop in uh, in these animals because of their extreme sociology, uh, socialness. I'm using the wrong word here, but uh, so basically because they're so uh, extremely social. So their brains um, are going to, of course, be focused on the task that is most important to their survival. Well, people, um, the, you know, neuroscientists who are, who are looking at the development of the human brain are, are, they're basically saying, well, you know, it looks like perhaps what it is is that we develop this extremely large brain to keep up with a lot of connections and a lot of subtleties. And so, so perhaps as we uh, developed more, uh, com we developed even more complex social cues, more complex facial expressions, body language, and then also perhaps um, uh, verbal language. I actually don't know how uh, far back people believe that we have verbal language. That is, uh, uh, that's something I, that uh, I'm curious about now that I just thought of it. But um, the, um, so the development of this big brain with all of its just enormous expense to humans had a value. And, uh, and I think that, uh, that as we tried out another template, because that's basically, you know, whenever you have something evolving, that is a change in templates, you're trying out these various templates. And of course, as you change anything in a highly developed system, it's going to impact other systems. So you so whenever you make a change in, for instance, if you are to focus on uh, extremely complex social interactions and and, and trying to develop uh, let's see models of 
every individual's behavior in every possible situation and what that might mean to your current social position and uh, and all of these things. There's a the, the extreme sociology. So soci I don't know what the what's the right word to use in this context. Uh, the so extreme social. I think there's a different word. I'm just it's just not coming to mind. Um, the extreme socialness uh, and the necessity of keeping up with that. You can keep up with ever more information, ever larger sets of possible contexts and the contexts and their uh, their meaning and and be you know basically keeping up with a tremendous amount of social information. But if you then try to use that same brain space for uh, focusing on the way that the physical world works, and that is the development of tools, then you're, you're basically your focus of what is, what is important information to save, what is important information to, um, to look at and to examine and to, uh, to keep up with. You know, if your primary way of survival is through the social network, then it is not through manipulating physical reality, and therefore the the small details of physical reality are not as important to you. So I believe that that as we started to, uh, you know, you have when, whenever you have uh, abundance uh, in a uh, in a group of animals, uh, or in an or in an area where animals can develop, you end up having many more species, which is basically nature trying out lots of different templates of animal to that can survive. And then, whereas you know, you know, in a desert, you have very few. Uh, and so, I think that what, one of the things is socialness, which is like the what the macaques have, and then what we also have, uh, allows for the development of. Uh, other templates. Now, these other templates, of course, can also be seen as weaknesses. In other words, like uh, the extremity of um, autism is a weakness. But if you can save it and hone it into something useful, where there is this, where the first the first time it just kind of genetically, you know, uh, branches off in one direction, it's basically it's an aberration. So it starts out as this dysfunction. Um, uh, or, but the thing is that dysfunction, if it has some use, can be kept so long as there is an abundance of resources which will allow more widely differentiating templates to be tried out for a long enough period of time. So so basically I believe that, that uh, we started to develop um, this uh, fascination with the physical world more and those individuals which became more fascinated with the physical world may not have been as good at social things and them and as a matter as a matter of fact we can see that now that it's also true and you have we, we we've been for years we called it being uh very nerdy and now we're calling it uh asperger's uh and then and it's only when they were completely dysfunctional uh you know which of course how can you say what's completely dysfunctional there's a it's a smooth transition uh but when you know we had this kind of a line of what is autism and that is when they're just either so dysfunctional they can't really take care of themselves well yeah, I can I can tell you there's a lot of wives who uh, who will tell you that their husbands can't take care of themselves. Uh, you know, but the, there is this this um, uh, bent towards focusing on the way that the physical world works that takes over the same brain area uh, or brain functions and usages that would otherwise be used for storing and cataloging and calculating uh, a different type of information. And so I think that what, what's going on is that it's it also uh, is that we've got basically kind of a, a 
disablement of the amygdala. And we find that that, that as the amygdala um, changes, okay, so there are there are large so what, changes. What do you mean by uh, disablement? You mean the 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 social learning? Uh, the social aspect, aspect. Mm-hmm. exactly. What, what it, 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 the structure was originally most strongly associated with was uh, with social interaction and uh, and fear, uh, specifically storing you know the uh, the associations with fear, what not to do. Or um, also, as uh, as we mentioned earlier, the uh, sad faces activating amygdala. While we know that autism spectrum has a difficulty recognizing emotions as portrayed through faces so that that sort of aspect of the amygdala has been taken over or right adult. and i believe that instead what, what occurs is that it, it begins to uh try to store information about the 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 physical world more like what you'll find of course with uh, autistic savants is that they'll they, they can store and calculate these uh massive amounts of just raw information. They become much more computer-like, basically. Uh, they can store information, and they can retrieve information, but then there are t- certain types of calculation that, that are not as um, uh, easy for them. In other words, the the social interactions, which have to do with, uh, and, and this is, by the way, and this is the next part of it that, that I kind of see as the differentiation between the brain types, and that is whether it is focused more on linear uh, processing versus um, uh, simultaneous. I'm trying to think of the, uh, the uh, a better word for that, but basically simultaneously processing many things. Like you'll find that a lot of times people associate uh, left brain with being logical, whereas where that's it's actually more that the left brain uh, stores information that deals with episodic memory and things of that nature. Whereas you know where men might see themselves as left brain, the truth of the matter is in the right brain where you have uh, spatial processing that's also associated with uh, with uh, you know the male-female dichotomy where men uh, develop more of the uh, spatial processing. And that is more in the right brain. And as you can you can see, whenever you think of like 3D rotations of something in your brain, that's something that guys can do uh, a little bit easier usually. Uh, there, There's not a linear progression of events occurring in a three-dimensional rotation. There is something that everything is happening all at once. And so uh, it seems as though the right brain deals more with that uh, processing of things that, that are happening all at once versus the left brain is more about the future, past, linear type of processing. And so it seems as though um, linear and detail-oriented helps us deal with tool building and invention and creating uh, those sorts of things. And so it, it became a, uh, a dominance towards that type of thought that occurred with autism. So I think that, that, uh, that what we may have is that autism and, uh, and the, the male differentiation, all of those things tended to uh, start to develop at the same time. And they are kind of basically the same thing, which is a focus on the on the physical world, a focus more towards linear and detailed uh, things. And so um, just trying to tease out all of the different things that show this this pattern of information and pattern of development. So so here's the thing, though. What I did want to talk a lot about today, though, is the the disability that comes with the ability. So uh, first, one of the things that people talk about autism as though it is this one thing that is a spectrum in one direction. I believe that there is something equivalent to autism. Now, there is a disease that uh, shows hypersocialness and some cognitive def- deficits. I forget the name of it. I should have looked it up before uh, coming on. But um, but I, I think that there is one of the things 
that uh, people don't realize is that we're, we're just taking what we think of as normal uh, and using that as as the kind of the the set point. Whereas there, it's it's just a uh, it's just a place along any you know uh, level of uh, different aspects a system might have, I guess is the best way to put it. And so I believe that there are people who are the equivalent of, and I like the term, uh, well, I, I kind of like the term idiot savant for the, for the, the, the point that it shows that there is a ability and disability that happens simultaneously. And the same thing I believe occurs at the other end of the spectrum. And that is people who are who are basically completely disabled in those things which are rational and that are um, uh, have to do with linear processing and uh, and that they they go um, they have exactly the opposite of what autistic savants have and that is that they're extremely good at um, uh, being able to see, you know, the the facial expressions and the um, the the body language and thinking of all of the people and all the people they know and all their opinions simultaneously, so that in every single moment of an interaction, there is almost no conception of the future and past, but there is this ability to see 15 steps out all the people that know all the people and what all their opinions about all the opinions and specific ways in which, you know, their, their uh, social hierarchy is related to one another. And so that they're completely, you know, what, uh, what somebody who's more on the autistic spectrum would think of as an imbecile because they are bad at their ability. However, they still have a savantism at, uh, at this other ability, which is missing in the person who's more on the spectrum. And so I think that there, that there is a middle point and there is an extremity that we don't really recognize in society right now because of the fact that it is it's more complex in a certain way. In other words, the, and I think that a lot of times they, they might call that emo, the EQ emotional, uh, um, you know, intelligence. And I think that there is the idiot savant in that, um, uh, place as well. And I think that most people, if they were to look at their interactions with a wide variety of people, that they would see that there are those who are socially, that are extremely socially competent and they are complete imbeciles in another way where it seems like, how do you tie your shoes? I mean, and, and they can end up in, in places in politics, they can end up in, and they, they just seem like they're completely they're, they're surprisingly and you can't even wrap your head around how they can be so dumb at these other things. It just doesn't make any sense to you because that's your ability and that's what you're good at. Uh, and so you look at that and you're like, how can you be so, uh, what? This doesn't make any sense. Yet here you are in these higher positions, in these social positions, and you're, you're the uh, head salesman at whatever. And you, it seems like you just can't you know, you, uh, th these these one and one plus two easy, 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 simple tasks in everyday life of having to deal with, you know, rational thinking, you 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 just break at how do you do this? And I think that 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 is an indicator of that there is this spectrum that goes all the way to the other end. And we don't and we just kind of it's kind of an invisible uh, spectrum that people don't really think about or talk about, because I think most human beings come from that perspective. In other words, that with that, that the, in the d very deep past, that's what we were using our brains for. And so that was what was normal. And so we don't recognize that idiot savantism because that is what's normal, because that's what's historically normal. In other words, that's what human beings 
200,000 and 300,000 years ago were using that big brain for uh, is to do all that social calculation, which is more lateral. They didn't have as much of a uh, future to past look at things, but they were they had a very broad perspective of everybody's situation and how, you know, tiny little things, a, a little motion of the leaves in the forest, you know, uh, meant the rain was coming. You know, just they were able to look at a million things that were lateral they were you know the simultaneous instantaneous um you know calculations that are not something you can really put in episodic memory in other words you can't hold what uh, you know we, we well we do with math in other words like a matrix transformation in math you go through and you're moving every little variable and that what a matrix transformation in math is just basically it's a you, you know if you want to rotate a cube uh in a 3d world well you do a matrix transformation and, and so there is kind of this there's ways in which we can look at things at a little more linearly but when we're doing it in our heads we're kind of there's you're not when, when somebody throws you a ball you're not thinking of all of the little you know where each molecule in the ball is going to be after you know all those little you know one at a time linear things it is there, there is a kind of instantaneous way things are going and you're not doing all those linear transfer those linear calculations you're doing something that is much more lateral and uh and so I can I guess that's my point is that there's these two basic uh, ways in which your your the the bulk of your thought can be angled. In other words, it can be more linear or it can be more um, you know, concurrent. And so uh, I think that that the the basic human way of doing things was extremely extremely concurrent. And uh, and so now once we've started to develop this, what are some of the things that like I personally started to develop this with this knowledge of like I'm missing certain things. Like I started seeing uh, like many years ago, I looked at that. It's like okay, I I can tell there are things that I'm not getting that other people are, or there's things that they can do that I can't quite do, even though I have my entire life when it comes to academics, I've always excelled. So how is it that I can be both smart and dumb at the same time? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so I started, you know, looking into what are the different abilities that, uh, like for instance, that women have over men. One of the things I found first, and uh, so of course it's one of the ones that I remember the best, is the is that women could, uh, in games of naming a word that starts with a certain letter at uh, at a given time, um, like within a given time, I mean, uh, women almost always beat men at this task. And so I immediately like, okay, so so that's one of the things. And then you know, and I always associated a level of creativity um, with one of the things that were kind of in opposition to my own more um, you know I did programming for a number of years and uh, you know that sort of that sort of mindset to me was you know a, a little less on the creative side in other words whereas you could you could create something uh, through a building up of things there isn't there wasn't as much of this strange creativity of just like you know coming up with things on the fly I don't know exactly how to to express it but me you know, it was my personal feel that Are you I liking was, creativity and expressing this yes I am and so the so the point is there was a the, it, I felt as though I had a lack of creativity now that, that's why I ended up using uh, oxytocin to treat myself specifically and uh, and a number of other things uh, with um, you know uh, everything from you know uh, 
omega-3 and fish oil and uh and various vitamins and you know there's a variety of things i've used to treat myself as well as trying to find all the different ways in which my brain was balanced in one direction versus another and so i think that there's a um that all of us can try to reach more towards a balance and that each person is actually capable of doing that, but there is a, a starting bent. But looking at some of the negative things that it seemed to occur in those who are more rationally, logically on the, on the spectrum, because uh, that's what it is, um, I think that, uh, that you'll actually find that one of, the, one of the first things you need to look at is, well, what is a computer? A computer is very, very linear. In other words, there is a, the, the way things uh, occur, uh, they do not, they, it's digital, it's not analog. Uh, and, that, um, and that's one of the things right now in the development of, uh, of AI and, uh, and, and neural networks, we're, we're just now starting to move back towards analog uh, types of systems. Now, they're not actually analog, but they are, uh, they're leaning in that direction. There was, a, there, was a while, there was a period of time in which we had digital analog um, hybrid technology, and it just kind of got uh, left behind. And I think that we're actually going to head back towards that. And we, and we actually are, if you look at it from a certain perspective. That's why uh, the way in which, uh, uh, <laughs> the funny thing is there are processors that do processing of visual information, like uh, all of the um, uh, NVIDIA processors and things like that, they actually kind of do this. Um, it's, it's like simulating uh, analog processing. So there's, there's some, something interesting going on there. But um, shoot, I kind of lost my, my train of thought here, but I'm just trying to, uh, to point out the analog versus digital uh, aspect of the way that human uh, brains tend to lean in one direction or another. So, so we know, all of us know that uh, in the past, before the computer revolution, whenever we thought of somebody who was smart, and anybody who's older would know this, but not necessarily younger people. <clears throat> whenever we thought of somebody who was, who was smart, we thought of the idea of like they could do you know math and they could remember lots of facts. And now in the computer age, we sit there and we think about this. Well, well, a computer can do math perfectly and faster than a human. It can they and computers can store information and bring it back up more reliably. So all those things we thought of as smart are actually dumb. In other words, there's a, they, they, because of the fact that computers can do those things, there is there is a um, a way in which that raw use of information is not enough. It, there is missing something. So we can all say a computer is not intelligent except in a very narrow fashion and that narrow fashion tends to match with autism spectrum um, and so in discovering what it is that computers are lacking we are also simultaneously trying to uncover what it is that people on the spectrum are lacking and what i'm saying it is is this um this basically kind of like analog processing which is a type of simultaneous processing and that is that we that we took we went so far in one direction that we don't really understand something that is occurring it's an occurring even in people who are very strongly asperger's we have this concurrency this ability that is categorically human uh and that is the uh, that, that gives rise to our um our conscious experience and the way that we uh, interact with the world. I believe all of these things, and this actually res um, uh, relates to uh, what's called the holonomic 
uh, mind theory. And this is from uh, Carl Pribram and um, David Bohm. David Bohm is a physicist who is uh, responsible for uh, pilot, well, he's partially responsible for uh, pilot wave theory. And he worked with uh, a neuroscientist Carl Pribram to, uh, to give a model of the way that the human brain that is based upon concurrent systems. In other words, the way that, that um, neurons are firing and the timing of their firing is what makes up a, um, a picture along the, basically a, a lateral to the firing of the neurons. So uh, this, I think this is important to this whole uh, discussion. And so I, I hope that- yeah, it's that, a that's, very, very deep subject that, you know, is completely, I think, uh, going over the heads of, you know, well, okay, sorry. It's it's it, it, so we'll back there. up off of that. We'll, so so we'll back up off of that for a second. I'm going too deep. Uh, the, so the the point is simply linear uh, thought versus concurrent thought, and I believe right. that that is is how we come to tools, and that is part of it. So, but the but the, I think the really important thing that is uh, for all for I think a lot of people who are on the spectrum really like the idea of self-improvement, really like the idea of getting smarter. And I think that uh, whereas society in the, since the 50s, you know, especially, we really venerated all those things that came along with uh, a certain kind of computer intellect. We did not strongly look at all of the disadvantages as well because we knew about the advantages. And so we didn't really want to look at the disadvantages. And we know, I mean, those of us who are lean towards a certain way on this, uh, on the spectrum, we see the disadvantages of those people who think of themselves as more normal. We can see very, very clearly the disadvantages of those kinds of people who who are idiot savants because we a lot of times all we see is their idiocy and we don't see their savantism because that's not our skill uh and so i guess that's that's just basically my uh my whole uh perspective on the development of mankind through this this um leaning towards focusing in other words starting out as a child focusing instead of on the on social hierarchy instead of on the way that people interact our brains focus instead on what's important what should i capture what information should i should be stored in this brain and should be used by this brain is information about the physical world and the way that it interacts and that's what gives us the inventiveness to create tools and to invent and to um to create civilization and society but then there's there's this is such a new development in in uh um in evolutionary terms that there are lots of ways in which I believe it is also going wrong for the exact same reasons that it's going right. And that's what I mean that it's that we are humanity 2.0 in beta. So uh, that's, that's, I think that's the, as most of the, the most I wanted to say at this point on that, on that topic, on the, that spiel. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah. So to, to sum it up, the, the idea is that we've had, the same brain size and you know presumably structure for really really long time and it was uh geared towards uh being in groups and being a gregarious uh primate uh but uh, at a certain point we started developing tools and uh in fact there's some interesting association between pyromania and autism is there not so um oh that's right i forgot about that that is so cool <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, 
the, the you know that's one of the things that we all know about is the whole like you know the fire and you know and mankind's development of tools and our mastery of fire being a big thing and the and the funny thing is the association of of autism and fire is just that's such a great little marker i'm glad you remembered that well it it I would like to take some credit for it uh, because I was uh, pontificating in bed before going to sleep and uh, just kind of offhand said, you know, uh, I, and I actually tweeted about this. I was like, mark my fucking words. There is an association between autism and pyromania. I just fucking know it. And then uh, uh, just a little bit later, you looked it up and you were like, uh, yeah, there's studies on it already. <laughs> so, so it's definitely one of those things that as we were discussing the the possibility of autism being given how tools related and mechanical pattern whatever um, predictability anyway related it is it is what the autistic brain seeks out in fact that's why the more extreme cases of autism uh, present themselves with uh, inability of a person to feel calm is when things are in too much chaos and they're in too much disarray uh, there's lack of emotional calmness um, and it's overwhelming because there is a innate desire for predictability and uh, things to be as they are as you expect them to be in the, in the autism spectrum and as we were talking about all that uh, it's something that occurred to me uh, based on personal experience and the experience of other people that I knew um, like you me uh, one of one of my other ex-boyfriends, a bunch of other little case studies where it's like, you know, I kind of have a feeling that autism spectrum uh, has a bit of a pyromania side to it, which would make sense given that, uh, you know, if we think about autism as a, you know, mankind 2.0, uh, it would make sense that something as integral to tool making and our survival um, beyond the primate, beyond the hunter-gatherer, or not even a hunter-gatherer, beyond just a gatherer, um, you would uh, you would need the fire aspect of it, and uh, for the autism spectrum to be interested in that, it just uh, kind of really was a sweet cherry on top of of that theory. And uh, so, yeah, to, to recap, that's sort of the idea: is that once we started looking at tools at um, civilization, which requires you know building of things, it requires knowing how things work, like even agriculture. It requires, uh, you know, knowledge of uh, astronomy and the, the seasons, the freaking earth rotation, basically. Uh, a lot of these sort of systems and understanding of how systems work. And uh, that's sort of the idea is when we started uh, having, or that's when autism started being um, tried out by, by nature, by our template, uh, that it's something that grew because it was a beneficial trait that uh, women started selecting for in the, in their mates and vice versa. It, it, but mostly, you know, women drive uh, civilization in the sense that they choose who gets to reproduce, uh, what traits get to be passed on. And so we started having this uh, understanding that, you know, the nerds, the, the, the people who know how to make things go, they're the ones that are more valuable than the, you know, the, the primate who can't control his aggression or is, you know, knows who the leader is and who the second leader is and all that sort of hierarchical aspect um, that became not as important for our survival as a species at a certain point as much as making tools was and uh, and so from there we kind of started having autism as it, it proliferated and and maintained itself uh, in our, our genetic code as, as, as something that was very beneficial to us as humans based on its autism's um, 
preference or or not even reliance but sort of it's it's preference towards tools and tool making and knowing how things work because that became our survival at a certain point uh, in fact it was you know th that is sort of the evolutionary changing point between the primate and the human there's tool making i mean i understand the thumb is a part of it but just having thumb doesn't give you a knowledge how to use it uh, you have to have something some mutation something to happen which then would favor those who can use tools and that is autism yeah i see a symbolic thought but then the the one thing that they bring it back to the you know the uh the the, the a, uh, a dysfunctional amygdala leads to, you know, sociopathy, psychopathy, uh, you know, you, you lesion the amygdala of, the, of a mother and it no longer cares for its children. They're, the point is that there is, while we are learning to ignore the instincts, in other words, the, 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 which is the wisdom of ages, uh, we have these instinctual memories, we're actually beginning to ignore them to some extent as we uh, use the amygdala in a different way. So there's kind of this, there's this weird thing that I, that I think is kind of a, a work in progress in humanity, that we're, we're simultaneously, we're ignoring some of the things that are extremely valuable and useful, which, are, which deal with love, which deal with uh, uh, cohesion of the group. Uh, the, those those things are extremely important, and they came they, they came about because of you know uh, millions of years of wisdom, and that's one of the things that like like in recent times in the uh, in um, uh, with economic theory they were you know they were not aware uh, they called it irrational an irrational agent. It's just so funny to call it irrational, and obviously uh, game theory shows that you know the development of altruism and things like that. That's just good systems design. That's all it is. It's just that is properly creating a system which will work over a long period of time instead of destroying the environment in which it's in in a uh, exploitive fashion or you know eventually collapsing over time it is it is wisdom that came from you know uh, the aggregate of billions of you know experiences and in certain cases billions of years and so uh, so there's this wisdom of the ages that come with the instincts that we are tending to overwrite and ignore uh, and so it's and they tend it tends to be kind of carte blanche like when you have someone who is much you know further on the autistic spectrum they're basically missing out on a lot of wisdom on a lot of things that are that that animal that's it's a type of animal wisdom but a lot of it is extremely important valuable and better than our what we end up trying on our own and we say it's like oh well i i got i can come up with this simple system it's very elegant and simple and yeah well the problem is it's overly simple for the job it doesn't you know just like you can't uh create biology with a couple of uh, little fucking gears uh you know it takes a much more complex system to do the job of biology there are certain systems that that were designed over billions of years that are in place that are part of our instincts that we are starting to ignore as well and so there's this there's this uh kind of a, a trade-off that we haven't really been all that aware of i feel uh that we're that you know as we go into creating society we're trying these new things and some of them have already been tried tested figured out over billions of years and some of them uh, they, that information no longer applies because of how different things are and so it's just this we're kind of in this process of of juggling those those things and saying well which which parts of it are uh still valuable and we need to make sure to use you know the the cohesive families and the uh, you know those things that have to do with love and self-sacrifice and you know those those things that we find venerable for good reason because they were so important to their to you know humanity's survival because 
because it's a good it's good systems design. Well, now we're not you know we, we are kind of missing a few of those things on occasion as well. They're kind of gone from our template, and that's why that's why it's the in beta thing is that, that you know we're 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 testing this out. We are mid evolution in in my opinion. Right, that, that's the thing too. Is that some uh, actually of, of all people, Maya Bialik, Bialik, the um, she's currently on the Big Bang Theory uh, actress, but she was Blossom as it's one of those shows back in the day that people apparently know. Uh, thing is, she actually is a neuroscientist, and uh, there was a, an interesting video of hers I watched, uh, where she's pretty much the only person so far that I've experienced, other than us, who has as a neuroscientist has this understanding that we are in between things. We are in this weird place as humans where we have all of these instincts from a situation that we are no longer in and we're in a new situation that is too recently happened uh, for our evolution for our brains to have caught up with so we're in this transition stage of our instincts not really working for where we're at but we still we haven't developed new instincts because it's all so new so uh, it is definitely a, a weird, interesting stage that we're in, and uh, a lot of things are in flux uh, in terms of our understanding of instincts and what is beneficial, what isn't, and all of that sort of stuff. To, and what's interesting is our, uh, like I was talking about, the difference between genetic diversity in a uh, rainforest versus in, in a, um, a desert being basically the number of templates that evolution is uh, willing to try simultaneously is based upon the local resources. And so right. one of the things that you find is now humanity, with so much in the way of resources, is trying out so many more templates. Like one of the, one of the things that they find is... Um, behavior genetic behaviors like uh like where where they had that uh what was it the um the lovebirds that would build a nest by either putting uh, holding it in their beak and once one uh subspecies versus another they would always carry it in their wing and then when they bred the two then they had uh you know a, a, the child was trying would, would twitch toward uh, towards its wing and try to hold it in its wing or then in its beak and eventually they they just for the rest of their life they just kind of twitched towards their wing while holding it in their beak and then they had the uh, the types of uh mice that would either create a hole going straight up or the types of mice who would make a hole going straight out from their nest uh, out to come out of a hill and then they uh, and then the children of those created holes that went both up and out and so the same thing is true of humanity as we developed all these different systems for living in different areas of the world now with all of the resources available we've been breeding and, and creating all of these various new mixes of templates and then saving them because here's the thing if an animal can more easily survive therefore uh, the the pressures are not as great the co competitive pressures are not as great to cut off those things which are seen as additional tribes that in other words you when you try a lot of things you have a lot of mistakes and then what what, uh, what how nature does is it, it just does growth and pruning and so there's a and the level of pruning deals with the amount of resources available and so the, the fine thing is now with humanity having so many resources we're trying just uh, exponentially more templates because we're the, the way in which we're breeding so many different uh, types of humans as well as um, we don't have any uh, pressures to remove any templates that um, you know nature would not normally uh, say okay well that's a little too far off from the general template so it, it's interesting to see the ways in which uh, we're kind of playing out and and uh, branching out from the natural systems uh both in good ways and in bad ways simultaneously 
Yes, and uh, yeah, as uh, some of the people in the chat are saying, yeah, it definitely is, uh, you know, as we're, it's something that, that is important to mention, uh, although it should be a given, but, uh, you know, people don't necessarily know that about us, but, you know, everything has a price. Every, every positive has a negative and vice versa. Uh, every negative usually has some sort of positive that you could uh, trace, you know, why it developed. Uh, I mean, maybe not every negative, but, well, actually, I don't know, maybe every single negative, even like, you know, yeah, but most of everything. <laughs> most everything you can end up finding some sort of positive to it if you look at it. Here's the thing: things which are positive in the short term are negative in the long term, and things which are negative in the short term are positive in the long term for the most part. You can find that is a rule of thumb that is extremely applicable to most things, and that's one of the things that I don't know why people don't talk about that more. It's really it seems very obvious that every time you know you pick like okay, well, uh, sugar. Okay, sugar is good for giving you energy right now, and then makes you fat and unhealthy later. You know, it's like there's uh, there's almost everything that you pick. If you p look at it short term versus long term, they're going to be almost in opposition. And the same thing is true of groups and individuals. That, that which is good for the individual a lot of times is bad for the group. And that which is good for the group a lot of times is bad for the individual. And so you have this dichotomy that's just like biology and that there's always these two good things that you're trying to find a balance between. And there's a wave giving back and forth between the two that is constantly cycling, trying to find the best equilibrium between the two. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, there's, uh, there's a variety of reasons why, you know, um, nature diversifies, why it tries to find, um, something, uh, that works that isn't like everything else, because, you know, one single virus can wipe out, you know, a, a monoculture. So, you, you know, you need to be able to have a variety of ways to be, uh, especially since, uh, you know, and so nature's always trying that. And that's why we have, as we mentioned in, in the jungle, there's, you know, 10,000 kinds of birds with, you know, 50,000 kinds of dances that they do. And uh, in, the, in the desert, there's like, no, there's one way, one way this works, just one, uh, because it's, it's sort of the, the conditions dictated, but there's also a, a, a need or a proclivity of nature to try things uh, yeah to explore as much as possible because basically all what, what life is doing is exploring the infinite possibilities that it could uh encounter and that's that's what evolution is doing is it's a system exploring uh infinite number of possibilities evolution when looked at from a uh from a, a you know a when you look at it from a distance, it's just like a brain. It is a, it, it is uh, doing this growth and pruning of knowledge and of systems and of designs and, and possibilities and planning for the future. And the only way you can plan for an unknown future is to, you know, take what you got that's working good, try to preserve that, and then also try as much as, as you can be allowed to, you know, try out for the future and have as many different plans for the future going simultaneously as you can as well. And then whatever cuts off those things that don't work, well, they, they did, but you got all these other, you got all these other black backup plans going on as well. And so it's, it's just neat to watch how evolution itself looks like, looks like a brain in, in process over billions of years. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff there in the sense that, you know, which is why, why we mentioned that 
in, in autism spectrum disorder, we, you know, we have a bit of an issue with the disorder part of it. Uh, but there definitely are deficits that, that go with it. However, I think uh, there maybe I'm biased, but there could be, in my opinion, more deficits, uh, more just deficits to the order or the, the opposite of disorder. Uh, what is the normal uh, of being the, the social minded creatures that, you know, we've been, uh, I, I find that to be more disadvantageous. Uh, and that could be just because of once we had autism uh, or this aspect of tool making, uh, we, we kind of became a point of no return uh, because we started developing everything towards the the structure of things, knowing knowing how things work. And, and it there is something to be said to, to, you know, is progress good? You know, should we be constantly trying to go further and, and, and deeper and higher and in space and all of that? You know, is that good? Is it, it maybe it isn't. Uh, but there is this aspect of once we started uh, doing this thing of civilization, of tool making, of understanding how things work, uh, we we kind of take a hit uh, to our survival and to our um, well-being in the moment by not continuing to understand how things work. Uh, yeah, it, technology is just as 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 deeply ingrained in mankind as a web is ingrained into a, a, a spider. You can't just suddenly take a spider's web away from it and expect it to survive. And the same thing is true of, of technology with mankind. And, and and personally, I feel that that if you look at what uh, what evolution's been doing over long period of time is it keeps having to get reset by these freaking rocks flying out of the sky and, <laughs> and smacking it down and so uh so if we can at least spread to another uh you know another planet then it, it can have more uh, it, it can have additional resources and additional templates to try out so i think that uh that life has been doing that for a long time personally trying to uh the, so basically your, your hypothesis is that uh science uh is a evolutionary part of biology sort of absolutely i don't know i don't know what what better like how to better phrase that but uh but yeah that you know it, it isn't and science is not something on top of uh or extraneous i think to it's, what ju we it's are. just the extension of evolutionary processes it is it, it is the same thing occurring because here's the thing uh, that people a lot of times think of uh, of evolution as creating things in just a trial and error uh, type of thing and it, it does do that to a certain extent but the history of all of the developments beforehand uh, change the trajectory of the developments that happen in the future. The way in which they change the trajectory of the of the uh, of the attempts and the templates that it tries in the future is sort of like foreknowledge. In other words, the knowledge of the past gives a, a knowledge of the future, and so evolution is in a certain way. Uh, estimating the future and creating within that estimation for the most part. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so um, I definitely agree with, with that um, good stuff. And um, uh, let's see if there's any questions from the chat. But yeah, of course, um, the, the, the sort of the deficit uh, of the autism is uh, its single-mindedness. And the uh, the deficit of sociality is lack of any mindedness, <laughs> and so it's uh, it's an interesting thing to to find that middle. And I think that's ultimately you know as cliched and and banal as that is, but it is the truest thing that the middle, the balance, the the middle way uh, is is the way. 
Well, let me let me say what I think. The, the if you, you you were to look at it from a, a different perspective, that is, those people who are more on the spectrum tend to ha want a much cleaner signal. Uh, instead of when there's there's always noise and signal that we're always examining. And I think that people who are on the spectrum uh, want more of the. Um, of the signal and want less noise, whereas people, I mean, want more uh, cleaner signal and they want to get rid of less noise. Uh, oh God, you know, <laughs> right, I'd, I'd like to be able to speak. That'd be nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then there are people who want more of the signal and so therefore they accept more of the noise. Uh, and so it's whenever you're looking at a signal, it's like it's missing little patches and things like that. There's some, there's some creative connection of things that you do to try to figure out if there is a signal there or not. And, and what's neat is you do this with a Fourier transform. Uh, there, we, we, there is actually this kind of process occurring, which relates back to eventually we'll have to do a show on the holonomic mind and all that stuff. Yes, but, definitely. Um, the, there, there is this kind of creative filling in of points that, of data that you do not actually have uh, that occurs. And so this is part of the creative process. And, but at the same time, that goes wrong. And I think the people who are more on the spectrum, are it's really important to them to not go wrong in what it is that they fill in, whereas people who are more to the other end of, the, uh, uh, of it are much more willing to accept the errors of filling in so that they can capture more of the, the signal. So you have people who are capturing a lot of signal and a lot of false signal, and like you'll find that in people who lean towards schizophrenia and things of that nature, is that they're that a lot of times they're picking up things that are true. They're like, you're like, wow, that's, that, that's a fucking great insight and true, and then you're also telling me this shit that's completely fucking insane. Uh, and so you're just like full of noise. And so a lot of people don't want to listen to people who are leaning towards the wooish is what they a lot of times call it. Uh, but then there's the, the but then the pedantic side, the side where they're very narrow-minded. They can't they they don't branch out as much. And this was uh, the so, uh, the what's it called the sociology of science uh, and scientific development. And what uh, um, Thomas Kuhn wrote about was the um, uh, revolutions in science. What was the name of his book? It was. Uh, uh, the structure of scientific revolution, and uh, and basically what he was pointing out is this process where basically the knowledge that you have already narrows your attempts, and so because it's so narrowed, sometimes you cut off more than the, the that once you progress far enough that will allow you to meet the new circumstance. So in other words, or new data is as the case may be. And so the, so your plan and your yeah, could you, could you structure. Could you rephrase that? I'm not sure. I don't know if you're cutting out or, or, or what, but. Uh, what I'm saying is that, um, that there is a narrowness. Yeah, you're definitely cutting out. Uh oh, okay. I don't know. How to, I don't know how to fix that. There is a there is a narrowness that comes from your expectation, which is based upon the information that you currently have, and this occurs in science, uh, and it's happened over and over. We've had these scientific revolutions, and there's a there's a cycle of scientific revolutions that Thomas Kuhn talked about, and he used to be everybody's hero uh, back when the uh, Copenhagen interpretation was occurring, and you know there was these revolutions in science, and now nobody wants to talk about him because they think that you know. Because because it's time for revolution again, uh, just like they wouldn't mm -hmm. have talked about him for uh, you know <laughs> uh, just before the revolution happened. People are always they, people love revolution after it happened in science, but not beforehand. Uh, and so the uh, 
the, so the point is that there is this, you get this propensity of knowledge that, that narrows and narrows and narrows your viewpoint. And so you, so there is a narrowing that occurs that eventually gets to the point where it becomes so narrow, it's not exploratory enough to find the, 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 the right answer as new information comes along. And you, you'll find this, this process occurs in software development. It occurs in a, a lot of different processes. It occurs in uh, whenever there's an extinction event in, uh, in a species. They've no longer, uh, they've, they've specialized so much that they're no longer able to adapt to the new situation, so therefore it goes extinct. Or so you're saying that's where the, the necessity sort of for schizophrenia kind of comes in, that you, you know, on one hand, you can, in, in our human condition, that is. Right. So, you know, evolution so on one hand you have the the autism uh, aspect that can go wrong and being too narrow but then on the other hand you need sort of therefore you need that ability to look at everything at once which of course is where that can go wrong with schizophrenia where you're you're getting too much noise see, seeing patterns that aren't there yeah right. but, but but the ability to pattern recognize the ability to fill in the holes and not use only the most clearest bestest you know most provenest you know best data because because that is a narrowing thing and sometimes it can narrow it so much that you, you it's you're incapable of actually getting to the appropriate answer in the future uh, and so there's this this dichotomy of these two things whether it is to find more signal or or to have a clearer signal, and that is that, that we're kind of going uh, between, and that seems to go along with these two brain types. So uh, that was just uh, something that's that's interesting that you see in systems design, you see it in nature, you see it in you know all of these different situations. So yeah, you know, uh, going back to the uh, the idea of bridging it in the middle. Um, so we have the you know uh, the the disability of of learning, which is sociality, and then you have the disability of um, being a human with others uh, of autism. And uh, how you know how do you find that happy middle? Uh, well, there's actually a lot of fun, interesting. I call it fun because it's fun to me. But there's a lot of interesting research that has to do with oxytocin and oxytocin therapy for autism. So uh, let's go back to the amygdala for a little bit. And uh, why don't you tell us how the amygdala and oxytocin relate to each other? Oh, you caught me there. It's been a, been a while since I did that research on uh, on oxytocin and, and the amygdala. Yeah, <laughs> but just just the basics, just the barest. Man, it's been so many years, unfortunately. Right. Uh, basically, I, I just found that that oxytocin. Okay, that, well, I can tell you is because I remember best the the thing I was interested in most, and that is I was um, I spent a lot of time looking into kappa opioids. Kappa opioids uh, are not the kind of opioids that uh, whenever you whenever you think of opiates, opioids, you think of pain relievers, you think of heroin. You think of uh, those sorts of things, and right now we've got this um, thing going on in the United States where we've got tons of people addicted to uh, opiates, and it's a huge problem. Here's the thing: kappa opioids are released as one of the endorphins alongside mu opioids. So mu opioids are the ones that uh, activate pain relief very directly. They also are part of the reward system, and uh, and at the same time that they're released, cap opioids are, are, are released. Well, here's the thing. So let's look at this from a functional perspective of why it is that your body does these things. Uh, part of the fear learning process is to upregulate kappa uh, opioids in the amygdala, kappa opioid receptors. So that is, in other words, to 
you have to make sure that in the future you have learned that something is dangerous. So like say for instance, you get bit by a dog when you're a kid. Uh, your memories of dogs and the way that you associate with dogs has, has, should be in a good systems design you know, type of thing here where we're trying to make, make an, a creature that learns. Uh, you should be a little more fearful, more a little more alert around that sort of thing, right? So now, so there has to be some sort of memory created, and that is very closely associated with upregulation of kappa opioids. It basically means that it, you are more sensitive to any kind of alertness, fear response, um, and uh, and so that those a a large amount of kappa opioid receptors on the amygdala are part of what happens in PTSD, and it also is what happens in um, instances of children that have been abused. So th so there's this this why a part of why I got interested in kappa opioids is because I discovered that they were curing heroin addiction with a single dose of something called ibogaine. Ibogaine is a um, and so I was like, okay, well, what is, about it is making this work like that. They're doing that. They've been doing that for years in a variety of other locations. It is something you can overdose on. And, uh, and so I wanted to look into, well, what are the, what are the chemical constituents of ibogaine? How does it act on the brain? And what it is, is it's basically three things. Uh, 5-HT2A receptor uh, agonist, that is like LSD, psilocybin, and, uh, and most of those sorts of um, uh, drugs as a type of serotonin. Uh, ignore most of that and focus on capopoids and the amygdala, I think? Well, maybe? but I was getting there. Uh, okay. It's just, they, they all, just, okay, they're, just it's seems all related like a to information. But Sorry. yes, but. Sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> To make it really, really it's short, kappa opioids cure, cure. Okay, <laughs> kappa opioid, high kappa opioid activation. Because okay, that's not the amygdala. It's, uh, it is. It's, it's, no, but it is in the amygdala. Okay. Okay. So kappa opioids, lots of kappa opioids in the amygdala. There's one. There's two ways you, you could try to treat that. You could try to block up the receptors so that none of the chemical activates it, and your body's normally just creating the chemical at, at various concentrations. Or you can activate it so strongly that your body says, whoa, I don't need that many of the receptors. Fuck these receptors and gets rid of them. Uh, and so one is uh, hyperactivation or versus um, trying to block it up. Whenever you block up a receptor, your body creates more of them. So anyhow, so all of this, I'm, I'm painting this picture because there is one of the things that oxytocin does is it synapses uh, on kappa opioid receptor, uh, on, on the, the neurons, which are activated by kappa opioids. So in other words, when you would get the fear response, when you have more, uh, oxytocin flowing in the system, it will actually dampen the response. It, it, it synapses inhibitorily. And that means is that basically one neuron can connect to another one to send a, uh, a signal that blocks anything going down the neuron. And so when, it, when you have more oxytocin, it literally is blocking a fear response. And so it's, it, I, I guess that's where I, wa I wanted to get into it is that, that, that a lot of the memories and things like that, that are, that are in the brain as these negative events can actually be overcome by experiencing the feeling of trust and love, uh, and which is what oxytocin is most closely related to. Now there is a crossover of oxytocin and vasopressin in men, and uh, and that's a little too complex to even start to get into, because uh, well, also I don't understand it as well as I would like to. Um, 
but there uh, oxytocin is definitely present in men and has a, a has very valuable uses in men as well um so sometimes people try to oversimplify and say oh well vasopressin is for men no oxytocin is for men as well um Right, so just just the basics uh, of that, you know, the, the amygdala has opioid receptors, which have to do with the fear aspect of fear and social learning. And then there is a modulatory effect, a dampening effect on opioids through oxytocin. Right. And we know that there is dysregulation of... Um, come on. Uh Um, I muted you. Can you unmute yourself? There we go. I, yeah. I was talking, so I thought okay. I was echoing. <laughs> well, I was like, I need to fix this now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is specifically, okay, so there is specifically less oxytocin available and less oxytocin neurons, and less, basically less oxytocin tone in the amygdala of people who are on the spectrum. Uh, and so this means that you're less capable of quieting the amygdala's response to uh, whatever you have associated with fear. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the point is, is that uh, oxytocin, unlike other neurochemicals, has a feedback loop effect in that it uh, it naturally starts to kind of go away. Uh, in other words, you don't uh, you're you're naturally less and less sensitive to it over time. However, uh, because it is a hormone, uh, unlike other neurochemicals, which a lot of people know, okay, you get a whole lot of dopamine from cocaine. Well, then you become less capable of feeling a high from cocaine because your body is not as sensitive to dopamine anywhere, any, uh, anymore. Um, and that's different from oxytocin because it being a hormone, it signals the cell to become more sensitive to that hormone, uh, which is also a neurotransmitter. So it's, so oxytocin kind of has this special place in the way that it acts. Um, and so that's really neat. But, uh, and so, that's why oxytocin therapy can actually increase oxytocin tone. So you experience more of the trust and love hormone and you can actually become more trusting and loving and therefore calm more of your fears, especially social fears, et cetera. And so you, you should be able to kind of see a, um, um, uh, a relationship here in the um, that the, there's it's related with touch oxytocin is related with touch and so there's there's kind of these these interactions between uh, touch and human contact and being able to trust other individuals and all of these social aspects um, that are part of the amygdala system it's not you know it's not as easy to pick out the exact mechanics of it um, but there are a wide number of associations which we can put together and say oxytocin therapy tends to help people become more socially capable now my own um, uh, experience with it is that I would not recommend uh, a lot of use of oxytocin therapy over a long period of time for anyone who is on the spectrum because my personal experience was basically suddenly having um, other people's imp uh, opinion, feelings, and um, experience impinging on my consciousness more than so much more than I was used to that it was. Uh, um, not just distracting, but 
disturbing. Uh, in other words, like being too aware of other people's mental states uh, was not pleasant um, after a while. And so there's kind of a, I, I think that people whose brains have developed in a way that is along the spectrum uh, tend to need to be uh, kind of away from the, um, the, the, I would say that most normal people actually kind of uh, basically have other people's voices in their head all the time. It would be the way to relate to it from a person who's on the spectrum to those people who are more normal. It's like just having everybody that you know screaming in your head over your own voice at all times. Uh, and, and that would be my experience from using oxytocin therapy for a, for a while and seeing the, the, the difference that it makes in your uh, subjective experience. Um, and so I would say, whereas there, there can be some, uh, t when you have more added tone, this may give you more of the abilities of those people who are more uh, in that um, brain space naturally. I think that, uh, that your development over time uh, leads to where that can be a little bit uh, jarring, I suppose, uh, if it becomes very intense. So, so that's, uh, that's just my, my own personal experience and opinion on, uh, on the use of oxytocin therapy. I think it is extremely valuable in developing, uh, a little more of that, um, uh, what I, I think the people who are on the spectrum tend to think that normal people are, uh, are doing something very akin to mind reading. Uh, whereas it's actually just their, their, their mental systems that are uh, dealing with theory of mind and um, things like that are on overdrive. Uh, whereas their theory of mind is a, is a big part of their consciousness, a big part of what's going on in their head. Uh, there's the, um, uh, it, the information is more important to, the, to them. They're more fascinated with it. They're more um, uh, focused on it. And so they're using a lot more of their brain and conscious time as well as unconscious time to do those sorts of calculations. Uh, and so it's, a, it's one of the things that, that when you're more scientifically minded, when you're more into that sort of thing, that's, that ends up being just a distraction. Uh, it's like, hey, I don't like that stuff. Uh, <laughs> well, why, am I, why am I more fascinated with this? Um, is so so that's just like I said my my personal experience with it, but I, I think that the granted additional abilities uh, I think is extremely valuable. Yes, and we're we're talking about you know extreme uh, autism as well, where uh, you know the kind that uh, you know you have to wear headphones because the um, the environment is too overwhelming and, and things like that. But but they've been doing a lot of interesting research on that and that um, oxytocin therapy has basically been shown to alleviate some of the extreme autism. Oh yeah, um, I think in extreme people that they definitely, you know, you want to catch them as early as possible too to help them uh, in their development process. Yes, and uh, yeah, the basically the, a lot of the studies uh, mentioned that wealth of uh, evidence from animal models demonstrates the significant modulation of adult social behavior by the neuropeptide oxytocin and even vesipressin. Uh, and so uh, they're looking at using oxytocin therapy as a potential uh, benefit uh, to help um, uh, autism spectrum and, and to sort of introduce that uh, element of sociality that they may be missing. And cool. that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, but, but as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, that is an interesting aspect that um, uh, we're back to that um, drawback um, or sort of the price that you pay for the, the benefit. 
And uh, so on one hand, you have the extreme autism that results in lack of ability to, you know, function with others and to understand others. But uh, when you have too much of that, then everybody else's thoughts and their opinions uh, just you know, become overwhelming. Yeah, I think that that I mean, well, think about it. If you want to behave as a group, a very cohesive group, and let's assume that you have a society that is good. In other words, it is a good society. You want them all kind of working in I mean, as a systems design. So I mean, we're just thinking about this, not as a human, but as a, you know, you're developing a system that you want to work and, you know, you having having society all like aligning into the right, you know, working positions and all working together kind of in concert as a large, you know, organism to be able to compete with other large organisms being other groups um you know of course you being having that cohesion having people uh able it's their their, their mind being more hive like that is that is extremely extremely valuable uh but on the other hand you know there's there's problems to that too like when a society goes bad and you have you know uh, you have the, the Nazis going and killing people because they think that that's part of the law and they're upholding their law and you know it's like they, they're doing what everybody is saying that they're supposed to be doing and everybody's part of this one opinion that is a toxic opinion uh, so it's a you know there's there's the co there's societal cohesion gone terribly wrong and then there's you know societal cohesion that is you know extremely right and good and valuable and uh, like for, for instance I, I tend to, to think of a lot of the ideas of uh, that you know Japanese culture prior you know well older japanese culture not newish japanese culture because it's a little bit a little different but um you know i, I see a lot of their, their the honorable type of behaviors and, and ways in which they uh you know was it the 30 how many the 37 ronin uh you know that yeah that that uh, you know that's something that is uh um really you know gorgeous you know it is it's a it's a beautiful way of um uh, people being in my opinion and so there so people kind of working together in that type of mindset that they all share that is a great thing however you know the everybody sharing the same mindset does not lead to the same kind of creativity as people becoming more individualistic so you know, there's that dichotomy of individualism you, versus collectivism when you become too individualistic that's when somebody can you know uh, divide and conquer you know, yep. That's um, when, when people are dividing and conquering. That's when people are all uh, are all hurting each other and uh, and not caring about anything but number one. And society falls apart. Uh, and so you know, there is always the, the, once again, it's you know, it's just like the any any organism that uh, you know, you, if you have if you have a uh, cancer that grows inside you and it's taken up all your resources, and uh, you know, guess what, you die. Uh, but when you have them all working, all your cells working in concert, then you have an organism which can continue over time. And so there is. Is this, um, you know, uh, it, 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 revolution at the right points in the right time is great, and revolution at the wrong points in the wrong time is terrible. Uh, individualism is great in the right places and in the right doses and at the right times, and and same thing is true with collectivism. But there is a concert uh, that can become a cacophony. You know, you want a symphony, not a cacophony, and the difference between the two has to do with timing and interrelation. And so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of complexity to it that is, that can't be, you know, um, uh, expressed in really, really simple terms. And I think the most important part of that complexity is that it's never just one thing you, you, uh, the whole, I believe part of the mistake that we've been potentially making is thinking that you have to be this way or that was so the whole, you know, um, 
fight between conservatives and, and liberals. Which one do you have to be? Well, I actually think you have to be both at different times. You have to go up, you have to go down, you have to be a wave at all times. You can't just decide on one way to be and then maintain that forever. There has to be undulation. <laughs> there has to be um, uh, not flexibility, but that essentially is flexibility. Uh, it is not being uh, immobile, uh, petrified, dead thing, which is just this way and only one way. We have to, uh, as a society, as a people, we have to change. And and there's always a backlash to, you know, whenever you have people be overly conservative, there's a liberal backlash. When people are overly liberal, there's a conservative backlash. And we've been seeing this happen in, in our culture for, you know, decades. And uh, at a certain point, we're going to have to step back and realize that we have to change with the times and be flexible at be flexible in it to be conservative at times be liberal at times and, and kind of and go try to and avoid forth. going way way overboard in one direction or the other you know it's funny the um uh there's there's actually uh correlations between you know brain structures and uh and conservatism versus liberalism and and basically can't the, wait to do a show about that <laughs> the, and the autism spectrum correlates strongly with conservatism yes um, but that's not necessarily a bad, terrible thing. Um, oh, because absolutely there's always... not. That's the thing. <laughs> I, I think most people who are conservative would be like, yeah, that's right. We're the tool makers, motherfucker. Uh, yeah. that's <laughs> but except, except for the current Republican sort of the dogma is very non um scientific in any way, uh, very sort of uh, tribalist, stuck back in the, in the dark ages, God will figure out everything, you don't need to know the cure for smallpox kind of shit. So, yeah, uh, you know, the, well, uh, as a liberal. Point, <laughs> the point is that there's a, uh, that there is always, it's good to be uh, proud of your strengths so long as you recognize the horrible weaknesses that come along with strengths, that they are, that they are inseparable, that they are the same, yes. they are one thing. And so understand that, that they are one thing and that there is something that the, that you have chosen a specialist you know a, a specialization and that there or you know, in some cases you haven't chosen it, it's just kind of you know part of you but the the point is that there is a specialization and knowing that there is absolutely while you are proud of your your good things you must that does not diminish them that there are negatives that come with it but there it it only becomes a diminishment when you refuse to acknowledge the shadow when you when you refuse to acknowledge that there are problems that come with being more individualistic there are problems that come with um you you know, uh, thinking of things more simply, like a computer. There are problems that come along with it. There are deficits that come along with those strengths. And if we can focus on that with both sides and say, okay, there are there are strengths that come along with a more feminized brain. There are deficits that come along with a more feminized brain. There are strengths that come along with a more masculine brain. There are deficits that come along with a more masculine brain. Understanding, if we can do that, then we can stop saying, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, I'm the best uh, because I have this strength and, and you're stupid because both sides say that both sides say that with conservatives both sides say that with you know, conservatives and liberals i mean and both sides say that with the sexes and there's always both sides focusing on their strengths and focusing on the weakness of the other instead of focusing more on the weakness of their of their side and trying to build it up and and focusing on the strength of the other to respect it and i think that's the uh that's the difference is that and basically all those ancient religions and things that talk about humility i think that's what they're talking about they're not talking about not celebrating your strength they're talking about recognizing your weaknesses. Uh, you know, as far as civilization building, 
Uh, I am very much on the side of having fiscal liberalism, but having perhaps social conservatism, uh, having a structure to how, what things are best to do as a person, but then still having a collective bringing each other and everyone up uh, as a society in order to allow for the maximum innovation, the maximum ability to outcompete other groups, but also instilling an element of sort of more, more rigid, I would say, uh, set of higher, a hierarchy of what behaviors, thoughts, proclivities are more um, beneficial to us as people to be happy, to be productive, to be uh, whatever. But in fact, uh, a lot of times you would have a more conservative approach that says, uh, you know, uh, the way to be productive is to make people work 24 uh, seven. But in fact, science shows that when you give people vacations and give them time off, they actually become more productive. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of biology minded, uh, theories that we need to explore instead of yeah, it's the it's the idea that minded. yeah exactly engineering is there's one way and biology is no you have to explore every different way and that's how you find new ways and that's well, what biology that, does but i mean specifically in the sense that uh whenever you have a physics approach or an engineering approach you say well this is wet we need to make it dry but then when you have a biology approach because we as biological mechanisms have an element of homeostasis have a, have a our biological organisms have a desire to maintain its own balance they're doing their own thing the, then making something dry might make it even more wet because the brain or the body is constantly trying to get to a particular state and it is an entity that you have to interact with like a biologist would instead of having a thing that you interact with like a physicist would so there's an element of understanding brains and how and what they need and how it works and applying that to our you know Really complex system. The complex yes. systems which persist are homeostatic in nature. And when you apply di the directly what you want to a homeostatic system, you end up getting less of what you want, as opposed to sometimes doing the opposite will get you what you want. And so, yeah, yes. the under understanding that though. understanding that principle about complex systems is something that is missing in a lot of conservative perspectives of the way that things work. Right. And on the other hand, and then a bunch of liberal perspectives, you have the idea that there is no hierarchy, nothing matters, everything's as equal as everything else. And, you know, in that sense, we're sort of back to the overly social, uh, only whoever's opinion who has most friends matters more instead of any actual objective truth. Uh, so it's, it's the struggle. There we go right back towards being animals, right? <laughs> then we're trying to exist exactly. in, in a, in a jungle, which has uh, groups of 20, which are killing each other and, you know, and just survive off of the land yeah that's not going to work <laughs> right but on the other hand you have uh, you know people uh, boxing themselves into uh, concrete grids and uh, you know completely becoming robotic and uh, sort of losing any touch with humanity or themselves so um, yeah there, there's a lot of interesting stuff there that I would love to talk about um, in, in the future shows and we absolutely will and in fact we are 99% complete for our cherry stem patreon goal so I, I believe it's like three dollars is, is all we need to uh, to reach the goal and uh, that will allow us to have uh, more than one show a month um, and that would be be a call-in show uh, as well as uh, potentially uh, if we get 
cool guests. We'll definitely have those on and do uh, two shows a month. Uh, ideally, I would like to do two shows a month and a call-in show, uh, but that may have to be uh, it may have to be just a show a month and a call-in show every time, uh, every month for uh, everybody who is a STEM mode patron on patreon.com slash Anna Cherry. Um, we are um, volunteering our time and effort to, to bring you guys the show. But uh, to be fair, we're also really like geeking out on these topics. So <laughs> these, uh, you know, give what you want, um, give more, give less, don't give anything. We will still continue to do these shows. Um, this is something that we really love doing and uh, would love to have more time to do them more frequently. But uh, so far uh, I've committed to once a month and I would love to expand that to twice a month and also get your voices involved uh, in this. So become a patron today, uh, right now, because we're actually about to go into the after show and uh, talk about uh, any questions that you may have or further details uh, about some of the things that we've mentioned will be discussed as well. Uh, I may be pulling up some fun articles that uh, this time I don't have any fun articles, but uh, you know, I'll just do a, a song and dance instead <laughs> uh, as I do put on uh, my, my visual camera um, for the, uh, the patron after show. So definitely become patrons uh, if you would like. I would definitely like you to. Uh, you can become our uh, Discordian member, member of our Discord, uh, for absolutely no cost at all. It is open to all fans and friends and and just random strangers. I, I don't really have a, uh, there's no gatekeeping of any kind on, on Discord. Um, so definitely check that out. It is right there in the top link bar area of my Patreon. And uh, from there, uh, once you become a patron, you get leveled up to the proper role. You get a fancy color to your name. And uh, then you get access to the Cherry Stam Room where we post a lot of interesting studies. And uh, of course, get in on our after show, uh, which I um, am considering doing through Discord. But for now, it is through Google Hangouts, though that may change in the future. So definitely check that out. I uh, would very much appreciate it. We're really close to our goal. So uh, I'm all about pimping it right now. So that is patreon.com slash Anna Cherry. And we will see all of our patrons in the after show. So if there's any parting um, notes uh, you would like to say, oh, uh, just really quick. Um, I guess the, the timeline for our next show is I would very much like to go over the uh, low opioid and high opioid uh, autism, but we may have been, we may be taxing our, our viewers with, with all this autism uh, month after month. So um, we have a call-in show. I, I know we didn't reach our goal just yet, but it's $3 away. Come on. Uh, I feel like it's, it's worth to, uh, to do our uh, call-in show um, before quite reaching the goal. So, so <laughs> you're getting a little bonus there. Uh, on October 1st, we'll be doing a call-in show with uh, fellow um, people who watch the Honey Badger channel, uh, who are interested in our autism show there, people who are our patrons, who are our viewers through the Anna Cherry channel. Uh, and we will be talking to uh, people who have autism themselves and who are on the spectrum in a variety of ways and uh, both their difficulties and their triumphs in, in ways that they have been um, helped with things like oxytocin, like meditation, like, you know, um, yeah, proper um, eating, for instance, uh, there's some interesting uh, research uh, to do with the, the gut and the autism and all that. And I will definitely talk a little bit about that um, during the call-in show, because that is something uh, nutrition has helped me personally. And uh, that is sort of will 
flow into the next topic. So for uh, next month, for October, uh, given that it's uh, you know the sugar month, <laughs> we'll be uh, talking about the gut, uh, gut bacteria, uh, the gut being the second brain. Uh, that's that's my theory, my opinion, and uh, I'm sure I've probably seen that written somewhere. If not, it should be. The gut is a second brain, and there's a lot of interesting research to to back that up. And uh, so we'll be talking about gut nutrition, and that'll be the bridge between autism and, and the gut because the gut dysregulation, IBM, and variety of things like that are actually comorbid with autism, meaning they they are um, they happen at the same time. People suffer from both autism and gut issues. Uh, they're frequently found together uh, as uh, disorders that people experience. And um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff about depression and your mental state that comes from your gut and your gut health and uh, how sugar uh, affects all of that and how sugar affects a variety of other things. So that will be our topic for next month. And then we'll do um, a call-in show on that, uh, hopefully by reaching that, that goal I was mentioning earlier. And then for um, November, I would very much like to get Tom Golden back in here. Um, he is gracious enough to have uh, left uh, sort of, well, not an open invitation, but a, an open uh, acceptance of an invitation that uh, sort of anytime we, we would like to get his opinion or his uh, wisdom on the show, we, we can call on him and hopefully he'll be available. Um, so I would very much like to talk about men and um the difficulty they may face during family type seasons during like Thanksgiving, Christmas, the um, sort of people getting together and uh, frequently men do not have a support network, uh, particularly divorced men or, or, you know, single men, there is a um, lack of support from family um, that they experience. And so sometimes those family centric two months can be very difficult for, for men. And I would very much like to talk about that with Tom, um, during Thanksgiving month, as well as do a call in show at the end of that, uh, as a sort of a support, um, we'll be here for you. Let's, let's share, share a virtual Turkey. Um, and then of course the same for Christmas and, um, not sure where the show will go from there, but, um, I would, like to talk about um, other things relating to mental health and uh, sort of redo the show we did for the, for the Honey Badger Radio, do sort of a second uh, iteration of it to kind of go over some things that may have been forgotten or people who, who didn't catch it the first time of uh, tips and tricks on how to deal with depression, uh, particularly brought on by Christmas, by the seasonal affective disorder um, and all of that stuff. Um, so that's sort of the, the plan for the next few months and definitely write in to um, an email account. I don't have uh, for this. So I guess um, Anna Cherry TM uh, that's uh, T as in top and M as in models. So Anna Cherry TM, at gmail.com, uh, write in your questions, comments, uh, topic suggestions, etc. And of course, if you're a patron, uh, definitely do that in the Cherry STEM room on Discord. Um, that will be available to all the STEM mode patrons and higher levels. So I will see you guys in the after show, and then I will see you in my Patreon. And we will talk to you all next month in just a week. <laughs> see you later, and thank you so much for joining us.